Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 17. Most commentators understand chapter 17 and chapter 15 as describing the same covenant, just in different ways. Peter Gentry, for example, says chapters 15 and 17 are one and the same covenant, and together these texts present a fully orbed holographic image of the one covenant. I think that's a fairly useful way of saying it. Think of the covenant as like a snowball. At its heart, it never changes, but with each new roll, there are fresh layers, fresh graces, and fresh revelations. This is the next role. This is the next layer, and it adds to what we know about how God is saving us and to what God is calling us. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. First thing we should note here is that there's quite a gap between chapter 12 and chapter 17. In chapter 12, Abram is 75. In chapter 15, he's about 10 years older. And here in chapter 17, he's 99 years old. The delay is part of the test. Faith is means believing God even when it looks like nothing is happening. The other thing we should probably see here is that even though God has promised to uphold both sides of the covenant back in chapter chapter 15, that doesn't mean that he has changed the way he designed the world to receive the blessings of heaven. The original design of God was for this world to receive the blessings of heaven through human obedience. And now we see that this plan has not changed. God tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless that I may make, the Hebrew word there is natan, which means give, but uh, to make this an English sentence, it's rendered as make. So walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and do the things that I said I would do. So the bottom line here is that the design has not changed. God is explaining the conditions of, whereby the blessings will be released. They will be released through human obedience. And that raises one of the great controversies around the Abrahamic covenant. Is it conditional or unconditional? You will hear people argue that it is both of those things. You'll hear people who are very certain that it's conditional, others who are very certain it's unconditional. And the answer, if you're reading the Bible in a a comprehensive way, and if you're looking at all of the passages that talk about the Abrahamic covenant, I don't think you can avoid coming to the conclusion that the answer is both. It, It is conditional in the sense that it requires human obedience, but it is unconditional in the sense that God promises to uphold both sides of the deal, as per Genesis 15. Now, how in the world does that work in practical terms? That is the great mystery of the Bible. And it is only resolved finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
in Jesus, that tension is finally resolved because he is the seed of Abraham and he obeys God perfectly and thereby unlocks all of the blessings of God as God for men on the earth. Until Jesus, that tension just hangs out there in the narrative. God says that he will surely give everything that he has promised, but he also says that he will surely not bless human disobedience. And since every human being is disobedient, it feels like the promises of God are hypothetical and forever beyond our grasp until Jesus, until he comes and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thanks be to God. Verse three says, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now here is where Abraham gets his new name. All throughout this Genesis series so far, I've been kind of going back and forth in my references to Abraham sometimes calling him Abram, but usually calling him Abraham, mostly because that's the pattern in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul calls Abraham, Abraham, even when referring to things that happened when he was still technically Abram in the Genesis narrative. For example, when he speaks about Abram's faith in Genesis 15, when that was still his name, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4.3. So I follow that general pattern, but here, Finally, Abraham gets his new name. His old name, Abram, meant exalted father. His new name, Abraham, means the father of many nations. And this reminds us that the promises made to Abraham were always going to be bigger than the Jewish people. They came through the nation of Israel, but they were always ultimately for every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. We should also notice that this covenant with Abraham is called an everlasting covenant. And that reminds us of something we heard from Derek Kidner back when we were discussing chapter 15. Talking about the significance of that chapter, Kidner said, the New Testament finds this a momentous chapter in two respect. First, in its declaration that Abram was justified by faith, a phrase at the heart of Paul's gospel in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. And secondly, in its record of the covenant for this, rather than Sinai's, was the fundamental covenant. And it spoke of grace and not law. Closed quote. So it's the, the second significant aspect that Kidner points out there that I want you to notice. The fact that the Abrahamic covenant is primary. Kidner uses the word fundamental. The Mosaic covenant, Kidner refers to it as the Sinai covenant. The Mosaic covenant was supplementary and temporary. The Mosaic Covenant was about law and ritual and form. It intended to teach the people about God, about holiness, and about the coming means of their redemption. And it has been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. 
But the Abrahamic covenant remains. It is fundamental. It is everlasting. The new covenant through Christ is the completion, the climax of that covenant. Jesus is how God keeps our side of the Abrahamic covenant. So there is an organic connection between the Abrahamic covenant and what we call the new covenant. The one is the promised outgrowth and climax of the other. Now, if we go back to our snowball analogy, we might say that at its core, the covenant God makes with Abraham is fundamentally about grace. It is about what God will give that will save and restore his people. It is unconditional in the sense that God guarantees even our side of the deal. As it rolls forward, some temporary helps are added, such as the Mosaic Covenant. But fundamentally, it is about grace. It is about what God will do. And that all climaxes, the snowball reaches full and glorious expression in the person and work of Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 9 of chapter 17 goes on to say, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, here we have the sign of the original Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's very important that we remember this sequence here. Abraham is already saved. He was saved by grace through faith. We saw that in Genesis 15, two chapters ago. So the sign follows his salvation. This is important for a couple reasons. For the Apostle Paul, this sequence reminds us to keep the focus on the thing signified, not the sign itself. The sign can be changed. The thing signified is everlasting. Paul emphasized that sequence in Romans 4.11. He says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham was saved by grace through faith. His circumcision came many years later. It didn't make him saved. It reminded him that he was saved. It witnessed. It did not make. That is important. Thus, the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. So to be clear, circumcision is not required for Christians under the new covenant. As the old Puritan preacher Matthew Henry reminds us here, he says circumcision was a bloody ordinance for all things by the law were purged with blood. But the blood of Christ being shed, all bloody ordinances are now abolished. 
So it is no longer in effect. It was a witness and a sign. But interestingly, we are not told exactly what circumcision is intended to signify. Why should cutting off a small piece of very sensitive human anatomy represent God's unique relationship with the family of Abraham? We're not told specifically, but we can make a few guesses. In the Egyptian world, circumcision was associated with ordination to the priesthood. And we know that the book of Genesis was written by and for people who had been raised as a nation inside Egyptian culture. So if Moses didn't feel the need to explain the meaning of circumcision, then our best guess would be that its meaning is best understood through the lens of Egyptian culture. God then would be saying that his covenant people are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, something God will make explicit in Exodus 19. We pick up our story at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. I like what D.A. Carson says here. He says, Abraham's understandable but unhappy skepticism that he will bring forth a son of Sarah at this late stage in their marriage leads him to propose Ishmael as the one through whom God will fulfill his promises. But God will have none of it. Ishmael will sire great numbers, but the covenant line goes through Isaac. The history of the covenant people is thus decisively shaped by God's sovereign choice. Indeed. Verse 22 says, When he had finished talking with him, God went up with Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he, and he circumcised the flesh of the flesh very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Here we note Abraham's immediate and painful obedience to the commandment of God. We should also note the diversity of those included. There were servants and sons, free and bond, rich and poor, old and young, Old Testament and New Testament, the church of God is a diverse people, all saved the same way, but all very different in their coming. Thanks be to God.
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.